towards the end of the fiscal year when money is about to expire, uh, parts of DOD might go on a spending spree and try to spend that money quickly or else they're going to lose it altogether. And even worse, Congress will look at that unused money and say, oh, you didn't use all that we you know, gave you for that activity last year. We're going to give you less this year because of that. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Fernando Cecilia, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Julianne. The U.S. Department of Defense, one of, if not the largest bureaucracy in the world, with a budget larger than the next 10 countries combined. Where does its budget come from? Why does it receive so much federal money? And how should the U.S. reform its military spending to meet the challenges of the 21st century? To answer these questions and discuss the present and future of the U.S. defense budget, we're joined today on the podcast by Todd Harrison. Todd Harrison is the Director of Defense Budget Analysis and Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. As a senior fellow in the International Security Program, he leads the center's efforts to provide in-depth, nonpartisan research and analysis of defense funding, space security, and air power issues. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Mr. Harrison, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Glad I could be here. So the U.S. defense budget is massive. That is not news. We already we already know that. However, we feel like not a lot of people know exactly where the funding goes after it's appropriated by Congress. So could you please break down for our listeners the U.S. defense budget and what are the biggest expenses and how does it break down? Sure. Yeah. So you think about the U.S. defense budget. First, the first thing uh, to define is what do you mean by the defense budget? Because uh, there are a lot of different ways that it is scoped. So the most narrow way of thinking about the defense budget uh, is just the DOD budget. Uh, and within the DOD budget, uh, most of the funding is what we call discretionary. That's funding that Congress has to appropriate each year. A small amount of funding, usually around $10 billion, uh, is mandatory funding. That just means it's on the autopilot, and Congress doesn't actually have to appropriate that money each year. It's a permanent appropriation. Uh, also within the DOD budget, uh, part of it, which is you know about 10% of the budget now, uh, is considered overseas contingency operations funding. Uh, and from time to time, they may have additional emergency supplemental funding as well. Uh, and you know, that funding is still part of the budget. Uh, it, you know, goes into the same accounts, uh, but it is appropriated, you know, usually either in a separate part of the bill or a separate bill altogether. Uh, the rest of the DOD budget, we just call the base budget. That is, you know, the regular cost of having, you know, a military. So, you know, in theory, the additional cost of fighting wars, like in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, uh, that should be in the OCO part of the budget, the war funding, uh, and any kind of you know response to natural disasters, emergencies that come up, like the COVID response, uh, that is usually handled out of emergency supplemental funding. Uh, so your base budget is just your regular cost of just having a military, uh, not necessarily using it uh, for any kind of conflict or emergency situation. So that, that's your DOD budget. Uh, and in recent years, that's totaled a little over you know, $700 billion or so. Um, now, there's also some defense-related funding in 
other parts uh, of the federal government. So for example, our nuclear weapons are actually funded through the Department of Energy, the National Nuclear Security Administration, NNSA. Um, and so that is not part of DOD's budget, but I think, you know, nuclear warheads, bombs, you know, maintaining our stockpile, all of the labs that go along with that, uh, even, you know, the development and the uh, maintenance of uh, the nuclear reactors that go on our Navy ships and subs, all of those are funded uh, through uh, the NNSA. Uh, and so that is considered de defense related funding. And then there's a few other items throughout the federal budget, uh, most notably the FBI uh, gets five, six billion dollars a year for work that it does in support of DOD. So if you include those other parts of the budget, uh, that is what we call the national defense budget. So it's DOD plus this other stuff. Uh, and so, you know, the other stuff, you know, typically adds 20, 30 billion dollars uh, to the total annual budget. Uh, so, you know, that is usually you, people either talk about the DOD budget or the total national defense budget uh, when they're talking about the overall DOD budget. Now, if you break down the DOD budget, you know, a common misperception out there uh, is that it's divided roughly equally among the military services. Uh, that's not true because about 15 to 20 percent of the DOD budget in recent years uh, goes to what we call defense-wide accounts. That's money that doesn't go to any of the military services. Uh, it goes through OSD to you know cross-service organizations and activities. Things like DARPA, the Missile Defense Agency, Special Operations Command, the Defense Health Program. Um, you know, lots of things are in uh, that defense-wide part of the budget. So if that's fifteen to twenty percent of the budget, then you know. It can't be a third, a third, a third among the services, right? Um, but if you look at the remainder of the budget, uh, the amount that goes to each of the services, it actually varies uh, over time. And normally, if you look back in history, you can see that you know big shifts in the services shares of the DOD budget often correspond with uh, real shifts in strategy. So if you go back in the late 1950s, the Air Force was getting about, uh, it peaked at about 49% of the total DOD budget. It doesn't get that now. Um, you know, and then obviously during Vietnam, the Army got a larger share of the budget. After Vietnam, the Navy actually ended up getting the largest share of the budget for a while. And then after 9-11, with the, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Army again got the largest share of the budget. Now, it has returned to a point where each of the services are getting somewhat similar uh, shares of the budget, although they're not exactly the same. Um, but you know what we're looking for, you know, each time a new budget comes out, uh, and every four years when a new national defense strategy comes out, what we're looking for uh, are any kind of significant shifts uh, in those shares of the budget. I'll tell you, there's one other useful way of breaking down the budget. And that's the way Congress appropriates the money by titles in the budget. Uh, so the largest title of the budget is for operation and maintenance. Uh, that's the cost of operating our equipment, um, whether in peacetime or in war. Uh, the cost of training folks uh, is largely captured in there. Um, you know, maintaining uh, equipment, uh, so doing like depot maintenance, things like that uh, to keep all of our equipment in shape. 
Uh, O&M funding is most closely associated with the readiness of the force. So if you shortchange your operation and maintenance costs, you could see uh, uh, some hits in near-term readiness, right? So your forces might not be fully ready uh, to go out and do their job if they're called upon. Um, you know, other major titles of the budget, military personnel, uh, that includes most forms of pay uh, and benefits for our military personnel. Uh, healthcare, though, uh, is mostly captured in operation and maintenance. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a, something you might not expect. And the cost of DOD civilian employees uh, is also mostly captured under operation and maintenance. It's you know, DOD civilian employees are not under military personnel costs. Um, uh, there's also the procurement title of the budget that goes to pro, uh, procure weapon systems uh, in quantity. There's the research, development, test, and evaluation, RDT&E portion of the budget. That title of the budget is used to develop new technologies uh, that will later become weapons that we buy uh, in quantity. Uh, and then you know, smaller titles of the budget are military construction uh, and family housing. Uh, and then there's some other small cats and dogs for things like working capital funds. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a breakdown of, of where the budget goes, you know, from a macro perspective. So going off of that, could you give us more of like a deeper view of how the defense budget is actually um, made? How do members of Congress decide each year or like how much to allocate into what? And how does the military have a say if they do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know it, it is a, a two-part process, if you will. There is the process of developing the budget uh, within the military uh, that then gets submitted to Congress by the administration, and then there's the process of uh, reviewing and setting the budget in Congress. So starting with the, the military side of things, um, the process there is known as PPBE, uh, Planning, Programming, Budgeting, and Edu Execution. Uh, and so, you know, that process starts almost two years in advance, uh, where, you know, DOD issues planning guidance, um, and fiscal guidance to each of the military departments. Uh, and, you know, basically says, this is what you should prioritize. This is what's important to the overall, uh, department, uh, strategically. Uh, and here's your fiscal guidance. This is how much money you have to work with. So then each of the services go off and start building uh, their own draft budget, which is known as a program objective memorandum, a POM. Uh, it's not a very uh, you know, uh, clear name for what that means, but it really is just a draft budget. So it starts down at the you know, kind of lowest level with each of the services uh, building up what they think they're going to need in the, the coming fiscal year. And they, as part of that, they develop a five-year plan. So what they're anticipating they will need uh, over the next five years as well, year by year. And there's a lot of detail that goes into developing uh, that draft budget. Uh, and so, for example, right now, here we are, you know, uh, in the spring of 2021, the services are working on developing their FY23 POMs. <laughs> they're in the early stages of developing the FY23 POM. Uh, and then they will work on that throughout the summer. Uh, and at some point in the summer, you know, July, August, maybe stretching into September, uh, they will submit those draft budgets uh, to OSD uh, to review. Uh, and so then, you know, the secretary and the deputy secretary will run the program review process, 
where they look at each of the services budgets uh, and they'll say, hey, you know, we don't agree with this decision you made here or you should have you know, put more money towards this. Or in some cases, the services will say like, look, we didn't have enough money to do everything we need to do. Can you give us more money? Uh, and so that's when, you know, the Office of Secretary of Defense will actually adjudicate uh, those types of decisions uh, for the overall department. Uh, so that'll happen throughout the fall. Uh, and then, you know, in theory, around November, maybe pushing into December, uh, DOD will finalize its FY23 budget, uh, and they will ship that over to the White House, to OMB. Uh, now, it may come with some issues. OMB may look at it and say, hey, we don't like what you did. Uh, and so the White House could direct some changes to it. That usually only happens for very high priority items. Uh, or uh, the White House might push back and say, you know what, we are either going to give you more money uh, and so go figure out how to spend it or we are going to take money from you, you know, uh, and so go figure out how to, you know, remove, you know, one or two or $10 billion from the plan you just put together. Um, so there'll be some back and forth there between DOD and the Office of Management and Budget. Um, but then around January, they have to finalize all that. It goes into the overall uh, administration's budget request. And then in the first Monday of February each year, uh, they submit that budget request to Congress. Uh, and so that's when it is finalized and shipped over to Congress to start considering. So in February of next year, February of 2022, that's when they will submit the FY23 budget request to Congress. Now, once Congress gets it, it goes into a lot of uh, different directions. So um, the first thing Congress does in its budget process uh, is they're supposed to set a budget resolution for the overall federal budget. Uh, and within that budget resolution, it'll specify a certain amount of money uh, for defense, for the defense appropriations bill. Uh, and so the House and the Senate are supposed to each pass their own budget resolution, and then they come together, work out the differences, uh, and pass a joint uh, resolution. That is not a law. It's not legally binding, uh, but it basically serves as guidelines, as rules uh, for Congress throughout the rest of the appropriations process. Uh, and so they'll do that usually early on, um, or if they don't do it, uh, then you can kind of skip that phase of the process, uh, which has happened quite a lot uh, in recent years, and you just go forward without a, a formal budget, budget resolution. Um, and then, then you have two separate sets of committees in each chamber that look at the defense budget. So you've got your armed services committees, uh, and so they have the largest membership, they have a lot of staffers. Uh, and their job is to do oversight, really. Uh, and so they dig in deep into the budget request. They do lots of hearings on the budget, um, go through all the detailed programs and activities uh, and what's funded and what's not. Uh, and ultimately, the armed services committees, they produce a bill each year that's known as the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Uh, the NDAA is a policy bill. Uh, it sets policy for the department. It can set things that have an impact on the budget, like the level of pay raise. Uh, and the NDAA, it will authorize, you know, you can buy, you know, X number of this aircraft or Y number of this ship, um, but it does not provide the money. It implies a certain amount of money, uh, but it does not actually appropriate money. 
Um, so the NDAA is interesting, it's relevant, um, it's usually a good indicator of what Congress will ultimately do in the budget, but the NDAA does not set the budget. It's a policy bill, not an appropriations bill. So in parallel to that, you'll have the appropriations committees in either chamber uh, and their defense subcommittee in particular, reviewing all of the details of the defense budget. Uh, usually the appropriators end up taking longer, they act later, uh, after the NDAA, but not always. Uh, but usually they'll they'll act after the um, the Armed Services Committees, uh, and then they will produce a defense appropriations bill that can either be passed on its own, uh, or you know, in more recent years, it often gets wrapped up uh, into uh, a larger bill called an omnibus appropriations bill uh, that covers the whole federal government. But there'll be a defense part of that. When that passes. That is the defense budget. That is what is actually approved by Congress for the year. Um, that often doesn't happen until after October. The fiscal year starts in October. Uh, and so often it happens after the start of the fiscal year. And so in that interim period, you know, Congress will usually pass what they call a continuing resolution, which is just a temporary budget uh, that just says, okay, keep spending in all of your accounts at the same level you were spending last year. Uh, until we get around to passing the final budget for the year. Uh, and so, you know, from beginning to end, it's almost a, a full two-year process before, you know, the budget starts uh, being developed within uh, DOD to when it's actually enacted into law by Congress. So we hear a lot in the news that about cuts that are proposed or made to the defense budget. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about if there's like a specific section of the budget that gets cut when these happen, when this happens. And also in that long process of making and passing the budget, where is like the cutting made? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So ultimately the cutting is made by the appropriators. Um, and, you know, it, it varies year to year where they go uh, and look for funding. In some cases, uh, they will cut funding because they are not convinced uh, that the funding is needed. Uh, they might think that a program is pushing ahead too quick, um, that they, you know, the technology might not be uh, developed enough, uh, or that they might disagree with DOD's estimates uh, for how much funding it will need for something. Um, you know, when it comes to healthcare costs or, um, or uh, you know, personnel costs, they, they might just not agree with the estimates. Um, I'll tell you one of the most common things that you see Congress cut out of the budget, uh, and this is a bit of a trick here, uh, is instead of cutting something in the current year's budget, they will look back at the previous year's budget and track how DOD is spending that money throughout the fiscal year. And if they think DOD uh, is spending the money slower than expected, uh, and they're not going to end up using all the money from the previous year, then they will rescind that prior year money. Uh, that's known as a rescission. Uh, and it counts as a, a cut to the budget uh, in the year that they're, uh, of appropriations uh, that they're working on. Uh, and so, you know, that's a way that they can free up money in the budget to, you know, add money to other things or just to save money overall is by cutting prior year money that they don't think will be executed uh, in time. So, you know, that, that is one of the most common things that they end up doing. Um, but, you know, uh, another thing that, that Congress likes to do when they have to 
force a cut on the budget is they'll just look ac across accounts uh, and try to take a little bit uh, off of a lot of different accounts uh, so that it's not too disruptive to any one area, but it kind of spreads the paint around. We call that the peanut butter approach, <laughs> where you just spread the cuts around as much as you can. So, you know, when it comes to like weapons um, spending, you know, on procurement, you know, if you were planning to buy, you know, 60 of a certain type of plane, they might cut that back to 50. Or if you're applying, planning to buy a thousand radios, they might cut that back to, you know, 800 or 900. Uh, and so they'll just make some incremental reductions uh, and spread out uh, those cuts. Before we move on to to talking about the, the debates re regarding cutting the Pentagon budget and some other debates regarding the U.S. defense budget as well, I want to ask you about something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is the Overseas Contingency Operations, or OCO. So what is this sort of extra funding? What is it used for? And why is it not part of the base budget for the Department of Defense? Yeah, so this is, is, is generally called supplemental funding. So it is additional funding uh, that Congress can enact really at any point within the year. It doesn't have to be part of the regular uh, budget process. Um, and it, it really it goes back to 2001 uh, after 9-11. You know, obviously 9-11 happened, uh, didn't see that coming. Uh, we knew there were going to be additional military costs because of it. So Congress appropriated some supplemental funding, um, you know, just a few weeks after the attacks. Uh, and then when it you know, looked like we were going to war in Afghanistan, uh, then Congress started appropriating additional funding. And the reason you, you do it through supplemental funding is because when you're, you're fighting a war, um, or at least the rationale at the time was if you're fighting a war, you you don't know you know how much you're going to need exactly right you don't know how long it's going to go on you don't necessarily know the intensity of the con uh, conflict and you know what types of weapons are going to be used and how many and what are your losses going to be you just don't know all of these factors uh, and so you just ask for you know a little extra at a time uh, to fund those additional costs as they happen uh, and so they started doing that after 9/11 uh, And as the war in Afghanistan drug on and as the war in Iraq began, they kept doing it. And the whole time, you know, the thinking was, well, this is temporary. So you don't want to put this money in the permanent base budget because that's going to, you know, elevate the overall budget uh, and then make it look like you're cutting the base budget, you know, when the wars eventually come to an end. You want to keep it separate. Uh, it's easier to, to track it that way. And it is temporary and we don't know how much we're going to need. Uh, from year to year in the future. So we'll just keep it as a separate supplemental. Um, well, it just continued and continued as the wars drug on. When you got to the Obama administration, uh, they tried to reform it a bit. Uh, they tried to clarify what counts as war-related funding and what doesn't. Uh, although, you know, that's not legally binding. It was just internal within the administration uh, that they tried to set up these guidelines. And, and there's no perfect way to do that, by the way. <laughs> um, And, uh, and then they said, you know what, like these wars are becoming more predictable. Uh, so let's start requesting this, you know, supplemental funding at the same time as we request our regular budget each year. Uh, so that's when we got into the practice of DOD would submit each year its base budget uh, and its, you know, uh, OCO budget for the coming year. Uh, and, and it has continued. Now, 
you know, starting uh, in 2011, Congress passed the Budget Control Act, and that put caps on the defense budget. Well, the caps only applied to the base defense budget because they knew that, you know, the war funding that might need to fluctuate uh, from year to year and, you know, it might go down. So you don't want to include that within the caps. Um, so they said that the war funding uh, is going to be separate. Uh, the caps just apply to the base budget. Well, that then created an incentive uh, to move things out of the base budget uh, and just reclassify it as OCO. Uh, and so Congress actually started doing that explicitly, taking things that DOD requested in its base budget uh, and then moving it uh, to be in the OCO budget. That then freed up money under the base budget caps uh, where they could buy other things. They could spend that money elsewhere. So it effectively was a loophole that allowed DOD to kind of get around the caps. In fairness, Congress also did this on the non-defense side of the budget. They declared some of the non-defense uh, funding to be OCO related, and it, it basically used a, a loophole there as well. DOD caught on to the game and also started reclassifying more and more uh, items that used to be in its base budget as being OCO funding. Uh, and so today, you know, the OCO budget is about $69 billion. Uh, only about 20 to 25 billion of that is actually the incremental cost of operations in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Uh, all the rest of it uh, is stuff that would normally have been under the base budget. Uh, and so it's the budget caps that really incentivized, you know, folks in Congress and in DOD to play this, this game, if you will. Um, the money is money. The money gets the same oversight. Uh, the money has the same controls on it in terms of how it can be spent and not be spent. It's not a slush fund. I don't like it when people call it that. Uh, it has the same controls uh, over it as the regular defense budget. It's just appropriated separately and it doesn't count towards the budget caps. Well, now we're getting close to fiscal year 22. That'll start in October. And that's the budget Congress is considering right now, or is, will soon be considering. And the budget caps are, are done for DOD. The budget caps ended in FY21. So you don't have the same incentive anymore to put money in OCO to get around the budget cap. So we're probably going to see the OCO budget go back down to be just war-related funding. I wanted to ask you about inefficiencies or mismanagement of the U.S. budget, uh, U.S. defense budget now. And for example, when you talked about cuts to the defense budget earlier, you said how one of the ways that Congress decides on you know where to cut is looking at different parts of uh, who's getting the money and seeing if they would spend all of that money or if they thought they would spend all that money. And I already wondered if that would incentivize different branches to spend like all that they get like even if they don't need something because they want to prevent cuts. And so I guess my question is, and correct me if I'm wrong about that, um, does the Pentagon do any efficiency analyses? And if so, have these analyses found or um, led to any restructuring of the budget? Yeah, so the, there is a, a bit of a perverse incentive here. So when Congress appropriates the money, you know, like I said before, they do it by title of the budget. They put expiration times uh, on that. So like your operation and maintenance and your military personnel funding, uh, it has to be obligated, it has to be committed uh, in the same year it's appropriated. Uh, and your procurement uh, money, you actually have three years to, to commit that money. Uh, research and development money, you have two years to commit it. 
Um, and there are a few exceptions uh, built in there as well. But, you know, what that means and the reason Congress puts these expirations on it is, you know, they are appropriating the money for a purpose uh, because they want the department to spend the money on a certain, you know, activity. Um, and they don't want that money to just sit around uh, unspent. Uh, and so that's why they put the expiration. The perverse incentive, though, is, you know, if things take longer than expected, if it takes longer to uh, award a contract or things are running behind schedule, um, you know, now it's use it or lose it with this money. And so sometimes you'll see towards the end of the fiscal year when money is about to expire, uh, parts of DOD might go on a spending spree and try to spend that money quickly or else they're going to lose it altogether. And even worse, Congress will look at that unused money and say, oh, you didn't use all that we you know, gave you for that activity last year. We're going to give you less this year because of that. Uh, so you know, it does, that is a problem uh, within the department. Uh, that's something that you know, former comptrollers uh, and analysts like me have raised as an issue that maybe there are some workarounds around this uh, to loosen some of those expiration uh, rules so it's, it's not such a cliff. Uh, at the end of the fiscal year. Um, with that said, though, that there are, you know, repeated, uh, you know, initiatives within DOD uh, to try to get more efficient, uh, to try to prevent this end of year spending spree, because it's pretty widely recognized that that's not an efficient way to use money. But in general, to try to find more efficiency savings within the department. The most recent example of that uh, was under Secretary Esper, former Secretary of Defense, um, he, he ran this uh, fourth estate review uh, where they looked at that defense-wide part of the budget uh, and tried to find areas where they could save money. Uh, and, you know, they did find, you know, some efficiencies here and there. Uh, more often than not, what they found is that they could just transfer responsibility for something and the budget for it. Um, instead of being in a defense-wide account, they could transfer it to the services. That doesn't necessarily save money. Um, but, you know, they were doing all this to try to identify efficiencies. The bottom line, though, is, you know, I, I like to quote former Representative Barney Frank. He used to say about the defense budget that the, the fat is not along the edge of a piece of meat where it's easy to trim out. Uh, when it comes to the defense budget, the fat is marbled into the meat. Uh, it's waste and inefficiency in small little pockets all throughout the department. Uh, so trimming that out can make a bloody mess of things. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, some of this is just a result of being a large organization. Uh, and some of it just requires kind of a bottom-up approach uh, of managers at the lowest level, uh, you know, being responsible and diligent to root out waste and inefficiency. And Todd, um, are there ways that members of Congress contribute to these inefficiencies? Has there ever been a time when perhaps the Pentagon requested cuts only to have those requests rejected by Congress? You know, that happens almost every single year. Uh, the, the department will propose, you know, retiring legacy weapon systems, uh, old planes or ships or whatever the case may be. Um, or, uh, you know, in many cases uh, in the past, the department has requested base closures that, you know, they've got excess facilities uh, all around the country, uh, but they can't close these facilities without Congress. Uh, and time after time, uh, Congress has refused those requests. Uh, 
and so, you know, that I think is the biggest way that Congress injects uh, inefficiency uh, into the Department of Defense is by not allowing base closures and not allowing the retirement of legacy weapon systems. Now, in fairness to Congress, in some cases, uh, DOD might propose retiring something and it might not be a good idea, uh, either strategically, um, you know, or they might be trying to retire something old because they want to buy something new, but the new thing they're buying uh, isn't, you know, may not be that much better than the old thing they already have. Uh, so, you know, Congress certainly, uh, you know, has to use uh, its power of the purse, you know, to provide good oversight uh, and make sure that, you know, the department is doing, you know, what it, Congress believes is in the best interest of the nation. And there can be legitimate, you know, disagreements about that. Um, but more often than not, what we see in Congress when they refuse to allow cuts that DOD has requested, uh, it's because of parochial political interest, uh, you know, that they just don't want to lose jobs uh, in their districts, in their states. And so, you know, that that is how we end up with a lot of inefficiency in the way the department operates. Another politically contentious topic regarding the, the U.S. defense budget was when the Trump administration attempted to divert billions of dollars from the Department of Defense's budget to build uh, the border wall. Under what authority were they trying to do this and why did the maneuver ultimately fail? Yeah, so there were several different authorities that they used at, at different times to do this. Um, and, you know, and it did have a backlash in Congress that may have repercussions for years to come. We'll have to see. Um, but one of, one of the ways they tried to do it uh, was through the, uh, the counter drug fund. So that's money that Congress appropriates each year. Uh, it's basically, you know, using DOD resources uh, to help combat, you know, the uh, you know, infiltration and the spread of drugs, uh, you know, often from uh, South America into the United States. Um, and what they, what they did is they used a transfer authority of that fund to transfer it Uh, to build uh, the border wall uh, on the southern border with Mexico. Uh, and then they also used what's known as reprogramming authority. Uh, that is the, uh, uh, the flexibility that Congress gives DOD to move money between accounts. Uh, so Congress appropriates money into specific accounts, um, but they also give this authority to move some of that money because, you know, in, in any given year, You know, you might not need the full amount that's in one account and you might have a shortfall in another account. And so, you know, within the rules Congress sets up, you can just move that money and then notify Congress. Um, so what the Trump administration did is they used that reprogramming authority um, to find money to, you know, help pay for the border wall. Uh, and, you know, I think most people would look at that and say that that was an abuse of the reprogramming authority. It was... Now, that's not why Congress gave uh, DOD that ability to move funding around. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, that's how it was used in this instance. And so, you know, there has been some backlash in Congress. And so one of the things that they have looked at doing is tightening those ro reprogramming rules and tightening, you know, the, the funding rules uh, around that counter drug fund um, so that, you know, a future president can't do this again. So looking forward... I guess, in your opinion, do you think that the Pentagon is getting the funding it needs and the spending that it needs in a way that ensures America's global competitive advantage? And 
If not, what changes do you think need to be made to ensure that the Pentagon um, has the tools it needs and able to continue to modernize our armed forces and be able to um, project our power around the world? Sure. Well, you know, as a defense budget analyst, you know, I I don't like to weigh in and say, you know, whether the budget is too much or too little. Um, I would just look at it and say, okay, you know, how much you need to spend on defense uh, should be a function of your strategy, what it is you're trying to do with the military uh, and, you know, the threats that you're seeing around the world. Uh, And so that should drive uh, how much you're spending. And, you know, if you want to spend less, that's fine. You need to just, you know, narrow the scope uh, of your strategy or be willing to accept more risk uh, in the execution of that strategy. But, you know, while a lot of people do focus on that, that top line level of spending for defense, um, I would argue that what's more important than how much we spend is how we spend it. Uh, and I think there is a lot of room for improvement, uh, especially in these inefficiencies uh, in the budget that are driven by Congress. I think that the reality is, you know, we are going to need, uh, you know, to stay within a flat budget if that's what the, you know, the Congress and the Biden administration choose to do in the coming years, uh, to stay within a flat defense budget, uh, we're going to need to find efficiencies because you have parts of the budget that keep growing faster than inflation. Uh, and we'll probably need to downsize the force a bit to stay within a flat budget. Uh, and so, you know, for that to work uh, and to not incur, you know, unnecessary risk in the strategy, then Congress is going to have to allow some base closures. They're going to have to allow retirement uh, of some of our legacy weapon systems uh, and the downsizing of force structure in some areas. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, that can be done in a strategically informed way. Uh, but if it's not done, uh, then either, you know, we're just going to incur more risk uh, or they'll have to appropriate more money uh, to fund this inefficiency. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that's the main area for improvement is, you know, giving DOD um, the ability to close and retire things it no longer needs. Well, Todd, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. We enjoyed having you. Thank you. I'm glad I could do it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Thank you.